Hello and welcome to episode number 24 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. In this episode, I'll be chatting with the co-founder and the CEO of IndieFlix, Sheila Andreen. Sheila has 26 years of film and TV experience, having started her career as a costume designer. In 2005, she and a partner launched IndieFlix, a global DVD on-demand subscription, streaming, and screening service that serves independent filmmakers and provides social impact films, television, shorts, and documentaries to create positive change in the world. IndieFlix has amassed over 10,000 titles from 85 countries and has secured worldwide rights on a revenue share basis. In 2016, Sheila successfully pivoted the streaming service to be edutainment-focused and now streams over 5,000 curated features, documentaries, shorts, and TV series. Sheila additionally oversees the creation and streaming of IndieFlix original social impact documentaries to thousands of schools, corporations, and communities in over 50 countries, effectively connecting the offline and online worlds through film. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship, to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Sheila Andreen. Hello and welcome, Sheila Andree, to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's great to um, have you join us today. Let our listeners know where you're talking to us from. What part of the country are you at right now? Today, I'm in Seattle, Washington, and it's a glorious day. That's wonderful. Is that where IndieFlix is headquartered? It is. Uh, It's so funny because I do have this incredible office on Lake Washington, uh, but there's no one in it. It's empty, but I have it for two more years. So I go in periodically. Do you have a uh, plan on going back more frequently than periodically post-COVID? A hundred percent. I, you know, as much as I love working from home and I'm kind of one of those people that works around the clock. So quarantine didn't really change my, my uh, sort of workflow, so to speak. Um, But I used to go into the office more because there were people there to manage. Now I do it all online. Everyone is remote. And so I, um, I do go into the office and I kind of am just there by myself. It's kind of awesome. And it's a weird thing, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. So you are the CEO and co-founder uh, of IndieFlix. Tell us how that came to be. I know that uh, your your background uh, included uh, working on a, a lot of just super successful television shows like The Wonder Years and Party of Five, Dawson's Creek. How did you make that transition from network television to the world of independent film? <laughs> so for me, it was really organic. Uh, I, this was not on my roadmap. I didn't aspire or want to be a CEO. I actually didn't even aspire or want to be a costume designer. Like I am a costume designer and I don't sew and I don't sketch. So go figure. Um, I actually, my, my love is the law. I love, um, I wanted to be a litigator and, um, just was obsessed with law. I object to what you're wearing. 
See, that would be a combination. <laughs> Overruled. Um, <laughs> and I just, uh, I don't know. I didn't even know that. I, I just figured when I watched TV as a kid, I thought people just showed up in their own clothes. I didn't know that someone was actually creating those outfits or putting it together in some way. But I fell into it because I fell in love with a director who did commercials and, and industrials when I was uh, at NYU. And so I ended up quitting school and working and getting really into styling for commercials, then sort of segued into television and just, it just was, I was passionate about it. I loved it. And I, I didn't, you know, it was, it's considered fashion. It's costume design. It sounds like it's fashion, but it's really dressing characters. It's like looking at someone and saying, Oh, I have to dress you like a very well-to-do snooty stockbroker or something like that. Or I have okay. to dress you as a homeless person or so there's all kinds of um, it's different, right. Than designing a line of clothing. I did that as well too. Cause it was fun. Uh, some children's clothing that was nice, but you could throw in the washer. Um, and then, you know, it was a natural sort of, being around directors and producers and actors all the time. I wanted to direct, I wanted to produce. And so I, you know, thankfully I worked on great shows that allowed me to shadow and be part of meetings that weren't normal, my, my normal design meetings. And so during my hiatus, cause we'd always work nine months and then have three months off. I would produce or direct a short film or a feature film, which then would take me through the festival circuit. And that's where I got to meet a ton of incredible talented filmmakers who had films that, no one was watching because Hollywood only has so much bandwidth. Right. And so I was, I sort of got this idea like, Oh, why don't we, with a friend of my best friend, Carlo. Um, and we just thought, why don't we start a marketplace where we can have these films be represented and have an opportunity to get out to their audience. So that's. And when was this, how long ago was this? Oh my God. Really? You're going to date me. Um, 15 years ago. Okay. All right. And it was DVD on demand 16 years ago. So it was DVD on demand and I was doing the branding and getting the films. And my friend Carlo was kind of heading up the operations. And then about six months in, he said, I can't do this. Like I'm a theater guy and, and I love stories and movies and stuff, but I can't see the audience on the internet. And so here's the keys. You have six weeks of funding. You've got this. And I'm like, I'll just hold down the fort until you get back. Like, you'll be back. It's okay. And he's like, mm, I don't think I will, but you got this. And I literally sat there and I was like, Oh my God. And I, for the first time I kind of cracked open the books and I looked at like how much things cost. And I thought, Oh my gosh. And I was, I was already familiar with like the marketplace and the brand and what things were going for, but I didn't know the whole operations piece. So oh, at that point, the, at that point, what was the business model? It was a DVD on demand content would, you know, we, it was free for the filmmaker. We would basically sponsor and put it up there and cover all those expenses. It was non-exclusive. And then um, we would give 70% to the filmmaker from every DVD sold. And, um, you know, we wanted them to help us market it, but it was, it was the early days, right? Like it was hard. I wanted to launch with like a hundred or 200 films, we launched with 36 films because I couldn't get as well. It sounded good. And filmmakers were like, so wait, it's non-exclusive. I don't have to pay anything. You're going to put it up there and, and I'm going to put it, make it available online. And you're going to send out a DVD and Netflix was doing their mailing DVDs. And I just said, yeah, that's it. And they were like, ah, I don't know. I don't like it. And I'm like, but it's just sitting on your shelf at home. Like no one's watching it. Right. No, I'm not. No one was comfortable. It was new. And um, was the discomfort because it was new? Yeah. And I had to go around. I remember I was at Cannes doing a 
talking, I got this wonderful opportunity to speak there at a huge forum. And I remember saying, I remember the hesitancy when people were uncomfortable booking a flight online and not going through their travel agent because they thought, is the plane going to be good? Are they going to take my credit card and steal my, my, my money? Um, When I show up at the airport, is the plane even going to be there? Like, will I get home? Like they're they're recognized as reservation. Right. Well, I mean, like it felt like a sham, you know, or some scam. And so, but now look, everything's online, right? Like, but in those days it was, people were hesitant and they were experiencing the same thing. Filmmakers were hesitant. And they also, you know, then there was the entitlement phase. Okay. Now I'm online. Where's my money? Okay. Well, you have to help market. I'm not a marketing person. I'm a filmmaker only. And I'm like, Oh, I was that person. I was there too once, but if you know how to tell your story and get actors and money and financing and getting into festivals and coming up with all that stuff on your own. You actually know how to market. Marketing is a story. Of those initial couple of dozen uh, films that were part of your roster, uh, did any of them break through or did any of the filmmakers break through either with those initial films or subsequent films? A couple of them did. I mean, there was, um, there was one that was an experiment uh, and this was like maybe a year in, um, or maybe two years in Jamie King did a movie called steal this movie. And he oh, put yeah, it up. Sure. On Bit, he put up on BitTorrent, and, you know, had all these, like people were donating and there was all this activity around it. And we were on a panel together, I think somewhere in Scotland. And um, we were like talking to each other on the panel down the, like down the table. And he was saying, you know, like, why would I ever put it on a play, paid platform when I can put it up for free and make money. Right. And get it out there and have awareness. And I said, it's a really good point, but, but I'm not going to use BitTorrent because it, it's just not my thing. Right. I don't judge if someone does, but it's like, that's not my thing. Yeah. So why don't we do a, a test? Like, let's just play. So he put it up on IndieFlix and we put it out there. And I think we even put it up on iTunes when that time, you know, when we were, cause I was aggregating content as well for other platforms for Netflix and iTunes and, uh, you know, precursor to Hulu, which was uh, juiced or the Venice project, which is the precursor to juice. And, um, and it's sold like people were like, Oh, in fact, we said this has been downloaded over, you know, a couple million times for free on BitTorrent. And they were like, great, I'll buy it. I mean, it was really interesting. The, the human condition, the human mind, the psyche, right? Like that safety in numbers that the reason that people fill a new restaurant with their own family and friends to show it's safe. There's people here or a line. There's a line. That's where we're supposed to be in line, right? Like it marks the spot. Yeah. So, it's, it's amazing regard, almost regardless of the, the, the venue or the platform that, uh, yeah. that seeking familiarity and, and then again, you know, uh, kind of just rushing to where the crowd's going too. Yes. The safety in numbers. Yeah. So you, uh, six weeks in your CEO, and when did it become? No, no. Um, so it's, like, it's like eight months in and I had six weeks of funding. Oh, okay. I get it. Okay. Sure. And right. I'm now the CEO and it's like, right. oh, shoot, I've got to like figure out. So I actually laid off half the staff. That was the first thing I could do that was going to stretch that money yeah. out. I moved us out of our big fancy office to like a 10th of the price in a place in a little apartment. Uh, near my home. So I could be close to my kids while I was working 14, 16 hours a day and just completely, my life changed hundred percent. I started, I had to learn how to use Excel 
And I had to learn how to like do PowerPoint presentations and I had to learn how to raise money. And I learned how to like go into rooms of men who were the gatekeepers of money to pitch a product that they thought, who's this mom in Seattle who's never done this before, has no history. And oh, she's a costume designer from TV shows and she wants us to give her money. I don't think so. So what I mean, allowed was- you to break through in those in those meetings? What 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 filled you with the uh, assertiveness and confidence to to take those meetings and, uh, you know, make your pitch? <laughs> Fear and survival. <laughs> those are wonderful motivators. I had the keys to this kingdom that we'd started. And I felt like all of a sudden it was all on me to make it happen. And I didn't. So I started surrounding myself with people who were way smarter. Right. And understand the industry and who I'm like, please, I'm not asking anything from you, but 30 minutes every other week for me to ask you questions or pick your brain or because I need to learn and I need to learn fast. Right. And I don't even know what I need to learn. Like, I don't even know what questions to ask. I started reading blogs and I started, you know, like reading the trades and looking at what other people were doing. I got really interested in like dev stuff. I started buying domain names when I couldn't sleep and I got really resourceful. I burned through my retirement to keep my family going. We ended up, there were times where you know, we just would eat what it was in the freezer and the pantry just to, you know, save on cash and, you know, help supplement the company that way. And then truly friends, good friends from high school who were like, this is really interesting and you're deeply passionate. I'm going to actually invest. And so that was, you know, pretty game changing. And that gave me a little validation and people were like, Oh, so you do have some investors. It's like, yeah. So then that brought more, it's that safety and numbers. It brought more investors in all angels and just started to slowly put one foot in front of the other. A lot of times there were things we couldn't afford to do. So I didn't do them. So I did something else and that turned out to be the right move. Were um, you At this point, were you feeling like you were operating in the, in the tech space or in the film business or a, or a new hybrid of the two? Great question. A uh, new hybrid of the two. I really, people would say, oh, you're a tech company. It's like, no, I'm a media company powered by, by tech. Yep. But um, I did, you know, I ended up bringing on an entire dev team and it was so funny to be managing a, a seven man dev team. And, but it was probably the most creative thing or role I've ever had in my life saying, yep. oh, let's build this search tool. Let's build this quick pick tool. Let's build this recommendations engine. Let's build, let's get the data and the analytics and let's build this. And like, so I got to play and try all kinds of things, which some of them worked really well. And some didn't, I got to build tools that filmmakers never had. And, you know, but it was frustrating because we built a dashboard so they could see their sales in lifetime and um, they never used it. They'd email and like, where's my royalty report? And it's like, Here, here's because no one had dashboards that right. Here's a link to your dashboard. You can go in all day long and see. I how don't want it to involve my car. You can, you can market, you know, like something and then see if it has an effect that week. Right. Um, and then it, it just got so expensive. All the money that we made went into supporting the dev team. And so I didn't have any money to market. So I couldn't really grow the company. And because I wasn't able to show like this big hockey stick, you know, uptick investors were like, we want, you know, like we want to invest in something that's going to go, you know, 10 X return. So I'm like, okay. So then pivoted, went to a third party backend infrastructure, lost the dashboard. And then people are like, where's the dashboard, you know? And it's like, 
we're working on it. Right. Like it's just, there's always something, but it's an evolution. Right. Right. Speaking of that evolution, how did, uh, how did the mission of IndieFlix evolve to become a producer, particularly, you know, particularly within the area of social impact films? Oh, great question. Because again, that's not something that I would have ever said, oh, I want to go do this. It was very unplanned. Um, you know, I've always felt that film for me is the most powerful medium. Um, I was an only child for 10 years before my sister was born, living in an old mining town called Breckenridge, Colorado as a kid. And I, you know, I was being half Chinese. I was bullied and um, didn't have any friends. And um I ended up, you know, TV became TV and books and my dogs became like my community. And so I was raised on like Gilligan's Island and Bewitched and I Dream a Genie and, and that kind of stuff and the Partridge family. And I ended up, um, you know, it's like they were such good stories, right? Like there weren't serial killers and drug cartels and you know, that wasn't like TV was very different then. It was very innocent. So I grew up around this kind of innocence, but the bullying was so hard. And I always thought if there was anything I could ever do to make sure no one ever felt the way I was feeling, right? that would be my, like the greatest dream and goal for me. So as a third grade, fourth grade girl, I was, that was my promise to myself. So now forget that move came to Seattle, lots of Asian people around bullying stopped. And, um, you know, totally forgot about all that. There was a little film that crossed my desk called Finding Kind. They were looking for finishing funds. I saw it as a rough cut in my living room on a DVD. And it was, it, it, it had such a powerful impact on me. I flashed back to being locked in a closet in the classroom in third grade and remembering that promise to myself. And it was just like, oh, like it hurt almost. And I wanted to turn and I wanted to talk to people and there was no one around. Everyone was gone for the day and I was at home. So I called up my, my kid's school and I said, I have this little film. I'd like to do a test. I'd like to just see it's about bullying, mostly about girls. So we showed it to the sixth and seventh graders. There was like 180 kids and it was so powerful. It transformed the school. Like they, they were like, this is one of the most powerful things we've ever had, like to address this issue. By the time we could even figure out, like, how are we going to do that again? Like, what am I going to do with this? I run a streaming service. Like, what, what do we do with this? More schools started calling. So we ended up going into more schools and then realizing, oh, now we need discussion guides. We need tip sheets. We need handouts. We need marketing materials. We need surveys to follow up. We need more of this. Oh, now we, let's start the kind. The, the filmmakers, you know, created the kind club, which was actually in the movie. And that became this big thing that we got known for. And then they're like, that was so powerful. What else have you got? So then I started, I did the empowerment project and that one was really fun and that exploded. And then I did. Screening. So when you say you did the empowerment project, so you came away from this first experience or with the film around bullying and were yeah. you thinking, okay, well, so now we're in the content creation business also. Well, so then, so then I, I, when schools were saying, what else have you got? And by then we were doing, you know, we'd done like a thousand schools, right. Sending out a DVD and eventually a link or something. And then when they were saying, where's, you know, what else have you got? I was looking everywhere because I was also running the streaming side of the business and raising money and, you know, doing tiny company, wearing lots of hats, no time to go make content. But then I realized I can't find exactly what I'm looking for. So a little film found me and said, would you help us? So I came on as a producer, okay. helped raise money, 
took that one out. That was the empowerment project. Then got introduced to the director of Screenagers, raised that money, took that film out and distributed that one, which then led to a friend of mine said, you know, you got to make movies about mental health. And I was like, I'm no, I'm not going to do that. And, um, she kept asking me and then she died by suicide and I'd known her since, you know, sixth grade. And, um, she had two children and a husband and I knew she was struggling, but I didn't know to that degree and ended up, um, making angst. And that was sort of my way of channeling all of my grief, maybe my guilt. And nobody wanted to watch it. Everybody wanted to watch it, but nobody was booking it because kids were dropping like flies, dying by suicide. I mean, depression and anxiety was off the charts pre-COVID, but they only had one school counselor and they didn't have a plan in place and they didn't know what to do with it. And now our films were starting to halo into corporations. Parents were watching at the parent at the parent screening at school and saying, why is it this at my office? Why, why aren't we showing this at work? So then we started to go to Goldman Sachs and Starbucks and World Bank and showing it there to the employees. And so that's just all evolved. But once school started to show angst and we started to learn that it does not flood the counselor's office, that parents are not saying fix this to the school. Right. Everyone started to talk and come together and now it's growing. And now people are like, no problem talking about mental health, but it's tough to talk about suicide. So then anyway, we ended up making two more films because in making angst, we learned social media was the reason a lot of people thought. So we made like making like everyone thought what's with all the meanness and bullying, cyber bullying. It's just so different than bullying. And that one, of course, was very, very near and dear to my heart. So we made The Upstanders, which is all about cyberbullying and resilience and community and belonging. So now we have a trilogy and we're just launching a one-year SEL program, an interactive SEL program to go with the three films. And we're licensing that into schools and corporations in 90 countries. So we're, it's just kind of ballooned. And, you know, where my... My stakeholders, my investors used to scratch their heads and look at me crooked saying, why are you doing these school screenings offline for sixth and seventh and eighth graders or whatever, when you're supposed to be growing the streaming service and the streaming service always kind of just paid for itself. Okay. But the distribution lab, which is what I called it because I experimented with so many different ways, the distribution lab exploded. So then they weren't upset at all. They were like, okay, keep doing what you're doing, but get those, all those people watching to come over to the streaming side of the business, which of course has always been the goal. And the distribution lab was the distribution of the social impact films. Correct. And they were not available on IndieFlix because if they had been, no one would license it for the school, right? It's a much different license and a lot of moving parts to deliver that product to yep. the schools as well, but it's community screenings, right? It's kind of like pop-up theaters, it's micro cinemas. It's, and I had been experimenting with it in theaters, museums, coffee shops, you know, where are we get, and then I realized, wow, these venues with built in community, they bring the audience, they'll pay the license fee. We just provide all the materials. So that's the model. And I was, I could not successfully get the, audience from the distribution lab to cross over and subscribe to IndieFlix, even though we started to show more content that they liked offline until COVID hit. And then COVID hit and all of a sudden people were, everything just came together on its own. So then we had to build a new platform, which was always, you know, 
bumpy. Um, but we have now we do, we host all these virtual screenings. We can do remote or in person for the schools and corporations. And then we have the streaming service of content for a purpose. So the, the subject matter, uh, of the, um, social impact films that, that you spoke of, they are at once both, um, evergreen because they're part and parcel with the human experience, but they're also very timely. Um, and, and they all seem to always have an inflection point, you know, something takes place and the media makes people aware of this and, uh, folks who thought they were dealing with this as individuals realize that there's hundreds of thousands or millions of people also dealing with it. So from a production standpoint, are these films in like pedal to the metal, super accelerated, um, you know, production calendars to. Uh, now it is. Yeah. 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 Um, Tell me a little bit about that. And do you have a roster of filmmakers that you're working with along those lines? I'm putting together a roster now okay. of filmmakers to work with. I've been directing and producing them myself. Um, I hired a director like Sarah Moshman, who did the empowerment project. She directed that Delaney who directed screenagers did that. I produced an executive produced. Um, but then I started realizing like it costs so much more money to, and takes so much more time to like some directors need a big crew and they need all these people and they right. need a schedule and then they've got other things they're shooting. And so it just took like twice as long and twice as much money. So then I thought, I know exactly what I want. I love directing. I love producing. And so I just thought I'll just do it myself over, you know, time. And it worked out great. So I've directed the last three and co-directed the other one and then produced an executive produced them all of them. So now it's easier to raise the money because it's far less money. I know we're going to be on schedule. I know it's going to be the formula that our audience is expecting because they all have to have, brain science, they have to be credible. It's gotta be pressure checked. Um, and it's gotta have resources and tools and hope. And what does pressure be, checked mean? Meaning like the experts go through the films Got it. and Added. check it so that we're sharing correct information. Uh-huh. It's not an opinion piece, right? Like this is what's happening in the brain when you're feeling this, right? This is what study and science has shown us. This is what lights up on an MRI. So we have real experts doing it. And then we have even, they go through it, but other experts go through it to make sure we're being correct. And then we have to have resources that are vetted, tools, tips, and hope. Do you have a, uh, do you have a uh, typical timeline from idea to completion? With all of, with all of this vetting having having taken place, yeah. Somehow, I mean, like angst took us nine months basically to make, and then we tested for about four or five months, yeah. and it was very slow for schools to take it, pick it up because they were scared to have the conversation and open it up. And then it takes about six to eight months to kind of get the flywheel going, where schools are hearing about it. The more screenings you do, the more screenings you do. And then all of a sudden you're just taking orders, right? Like they're coming in, but in the beginning you have to do the outreach. You have to explain, you have to bring comfort. You have to say, it's okay to show this. And it's, you will bring people in. They will show up. Yes. Everyone's afraid to talk about this. Yes. It's uncomfortable, but you will get people coming. And so that's always part of the release. So now I allow a year, but I'm going to do like, I'm doing a new one now called race, which is all about the effects of race and racism on our mental health. And that one will be coming out in January. Although this morning I was thinking 
oh, it's so soon, right? And I'm still shooting and then I'll edit in the summer, test in the fall, release officially in late January. But, you know, I mean, if I'm also doing a whole series too to go with it because there's just so much to talk about. Um, How broad is your geographic reach when you're, uh, you know, setting up the, the school screenings and community screenings? Uh, so we've had screenings in 90 countries. Wow. And these are virtual? Uh, both. It's a mix oh, of both. Wow. This, this has been over the years, right? Like, um, and we probably average between 100 and 150 screenings a month somewhere in the world, anywhere from like 20 people to, I think our biggest one we figured out was about 32,000 people. 32,000 people. What was that venue? That one, well, that was our venue, our main venue that we screened it on. And it was um, through the NFL and the United United Way worldwide. And it was, uh, yeah, that one was big. And then, yeah, we've had some sizable ones. I think our average audience size is on the virtual screenings is probably about 180 people. Sometimes. And what did, uh, what did the last year with COVID, uh, how did that impact um, the traffic in the streaming um, area of your business and, and the virtual screenings for the um, social impact films? You know, gosh, it's such a blur. <laughs> Such a because remember, right before COVID, everything was offline. I mean, the streaming business was always had to, you know, pays for itself, right? The distribution lab was just doing great, but 100% offline. So yeah. when COVID hit, and we saw it coming in January because everything in the East, like in Asia, started to push off to April. Then they were like, no, we're going to push to October. And we were like, oh, because there was this, this, you know, virus going around. Right. And um, so I thought, let's create a virtual experience for them in case they don't come back in April or October. Right. Like, let's just prepare. So we started preparing then. But then when America shut down, which was like instantaneous in April. And yet people were in denial. They're like, oh, we'll be back in May. And I'm like, I don't think you'll be back in May. Um, so we were already creating the tools. But it was um, what was the question? Yeah, I was just I, I, I was curious is what the uptick both areas well, streaming sort of grew all by itself. Like the streaming just suddenly like took a life of its own. I'm like, Oh my, Holy cow. Let's get new. Let's start refreshing the content. Let's start changing up the programming. Let's. And then I ended ultimately ended up moving to another, you know, platform to support us. So I could marry the two sides of the business. And we did that in August. And that was just, I don't even remember like June, July, August, September. Like it was just, I don't even feel like I slept. I think I just, um, I just worked from the moment I woke up. I think I fell asleep with a phone in my hand and wake up and, you know, we had people in different parts of the country. So I was working in different time zones and well, you have six or seven different job descriptions. So that, that would make sense. I know. Everyone does now. You got to do a lot of different things, right? You gotta, I think you're also the, it sounds like you're the CTO also as a, oh, uh, in addition um, to the CEO. Well, I can say that I probably, I had, I had a, he just recently left to go take a year off and travel, but, um, Sleep. he was my lead engineer for six years and he made me look good. You know, like yeah. he spoke my language. He taught me how to speak their language. Yeah. So important. And I learned about sprints and I learned about how to communicate with the dev team, which is, 
I feel like everyone should learn how to communicate with the dev team. It will just, make- just be able to throw around terms like agile and waterfall and scrum. Well, <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> but I think what's interesting is the way to communicate with the dev team is so beneficial to communicate with anyone in the world. So, true. you know, yep. it's just so clear. Right. It's so true. So, as we stand here now, and we're we are recording this in uh, early April, um, what of did the next of 2021 exactly? <laughs> well, for those of you archiving this, um, what did the next three six months look like for uh, for for IndieFlix? I mean, I'm always excited about what we're doing, but I'm feeling really calm and really I'm looking forward to expanding our reach. I think we've got some good partnerships that we've been working on for like a year and a half, right? That whether they got stalled a little because of COVID, we're now like pushing out stuff. I'm grateful that I had sort of the a great board that inspired me and encouraged me to sit down and map out the next three years. Like, what do I want? What do we want it to be? And because I've just been in the survival mode of like, patch that hole to do that, move that over, like, you know, in that, and now I, to have that, I am the vision of what I want us to be the, we've got eight more films that we are going to be making and releasing where we've automated so much of our workflow, hired a few more people, the sort of getting the sense and vision and purpose of the marketing and learning how, you know, we can be more effective to raise awareness for filmmakers not only teaching them how to do stuff, but also elevating the profile of them as storytellers and filmmakers and talent, but also their, their movies, regardless of when they were made, if they're relevant to making a positive contribution in the world. I, I mean, I want to build community with movies. I want to help people. I want to do good in the world. I still love Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, all that stuff. I love watching all the cartels and the drug stuff and murder things, but I love that we are focused on content for a purpose that, and it's not, I mean, it doesn't mean it's all docs or that it's family or anything. It's some of it's really hard to watch, but it's something that's important in the world that's happening that we should have, or some people should at least have awareness, right? So we mm-hmm. can evolve and get better. Yep. Are, are Is it common that um, producers are coming to you with, uh, you know, an idea for a film and they want to collaborate with you or are they coming to you with a film that's partially to mostly completed? Uh, what type of outside collaboration is taking place these days? All of the above, actually. And I will say we also have the IndieFlix Foundation. So the foundation was created to really help offset license fees for Title I schools or underserved communities. Okay. So they could access the programming. And then it sort of morphed into, it does that, of course, but then also helped helping to underwrite the creation of content. So perfect example, the IndieFlix Foundation helped to fund a, a, a big portion of ScreenAgers and um, some of Empowerment Project and Angst. And, you know, so um, in fact, the whole Mental Health Trilogy. So we get content submitted to the foundation, which is a different whole separate entity. It's got a board and people there who look at programming, um, you know, COVID hit and that kind of like paused. It didn't pause, but it just went on. It wasn't as active. Now it's, um, it's gearing back up. And I think we want to go out and raise a lot of money to help 
more movies get made. And it doesn't mean that they actually will even be distributed by indie flicks. They might just get made and go on Netflix, right? Like it's not, um, there is no, they're not tied to each other. So, okay. But people don't always know that. So they're like, Oh, I got this movie. And then we're like, Oh, you should go to the foundation for that. Right. Uh Um, Indie flicks right now is funding its own content. Sure. Um, But I am going to be out raising a film fund to fund other people's content as well as indie flex. So uh, those are the things in the works because there's so many amazing stories out there. There's, I meet filmmakers all the time who just blow me away. Like they are so inspiring and so talented and so visionary and they've got these great ideas. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to help you because this is going to help people. And, no, and I love that. And, 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 you know, I, yes, people of color, women, you know, it's, um, I can't wait for that sort of time that is right around the corner is being able to help a lot of other people. Yeah. Just this proliferation of new and varied voices, uh, telling compelling stories. Well, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's, we're still figuring out the workflow cause we've got our own stuff that we're doing. But my hope is by like late fall, yep. we will have a process in place and the manpower to oversee that process to look and consider uh, content at the various stages. So if people want to learn more about uh, IndieFlix and what they have to offer, IndieFlix.com is the place to go. IndieFlix.com. And then Cole will hate me for this, but um, they, they can go to filmmaker at IndieFlix.com too. If they want to directly reach our head of acquisitions, Okay. as far as like submitting a film, as far as like, um, film funding. We haven't set up a workflow for that. Like I don't have the manpower to go through it. I've just been doing it. People say, Oh my God, great filmmaker. You got to meet this guy, whatever. So I do all those kinds of meetings, but I mean, we really need a a process in place and someone who is dedicated to that. So once I get my film fund in place, then we'll start looking at that. Otherwise I'm, you know, I talk to people, give advice, um, that kind of stuff. There's just not enough hours in the day. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. And it, but it also sounds like you, you squeeze the juice out of every last hour that there is. That's for sure. I do. And I think I'm getting better at it. Like actually some people say, my God, how do you do it all? You know, we have six kids, we've got two black labs, like, you know, we're busy, but for some reason, like when you're busy, you just are really efficient. Yeah. You don't, you don't really have the option for um, not being able to do it. Right. You just, you get it done because you have to. Well, I thank you so much for, in spite of that crazy busy schedule, taking time to chat with me today on behalf of Filmmakers Collaborative. Thanks so much. Uh, We had a great response to the webinar that you uh, participated in with us last summer, which seems like years ago, but that was just last summer. Uh, And so I, I, I I knew that uh, this would be a, this would be a fun and informative conversation. And it certainly has been. Well, thank you. I, I feel bad. I feel like we just talked about IndieFlix, but I, I just want to say to all the filmmakers out there is that if you have a story to tell and you're passionate about it, just keep at it. Like, um, don't give up. It is just, it feels so good. And because of technology and all the opportunity out there, you can get your story out there. Right. And it may take time for a big chunk of people to see it, but you can get your story out there. And with organizations like yours that believe that and not and do more than just believe it, you know how to do it, uh, that that just increases the odds that those stories can get told. 
Yeah. Now we got to figure out how to do it for just more, more masses, like so that more, more filmmakers open up the pipeline, right? Open up the gateway a little bit. Excellent. Well, again, Sheila, thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Michael. Take care.